going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX Podcast, episode number 60. Six zero. Six zero. I feel like just yesterday we hit episode 50. Yeah, it was pretty much yeah, it was like a month ago. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's cool, man. It's been, uh, what, a year, year and what, three months? A year, like yeah, that? a year and two, a year and three, 14, yeah. 15 months. Wow. Yeah, it's been fun. Been yeah. a good ride so far. We've uh we've expanded a lot. Quite a bit. We started out with like one mic that we were basically sharing together and it was it was awkward. Now we have four. Now we do. Without people to use them. We've moved so. locations. We've painted. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't, but somebody yeah, did. Somebody painted. <laughs> now my father in law painted some stuff. Slowly but surely getting more posters. They're basically a new poster every ten episodes. Yeah. It's about that time, huh? Heck yeah. It yeah. is. We got the new uh the new truss metal uh, rigging coming in oh, hopefully this yeah. week, so we'll have some studio lighting in here a little bit better. So the, yeah, as, I mean, as, as if our lighting wasn't just awesome enough. It's true. It's, it's a good point. About to take it to another level. It is pretty, pretty solid. Yeah. All right. Um, what are we talking about in episode sixty? Glaucoma. The thing about Cole and I is, is we kind of pride ourselves on our extensive knowledge of ophthalmology. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. And so that's actually what we're known for. Um, besides. Well, I mean, as you guys know, we're known for talking about things that we're experts in right. all the time. Instead of like sticking to stuff that we do know, we pick topics that, mm, it's hit or miss. <laughs> <laughs> but glaucoma is a big one. I feel like uh, we don't, not enough people spend enough time on that. And I spend, especially... I think it's an underappreciated topic. It is. And there's so many different treatment options that yeah. I think it's hard. If you don't deal with that on a daily basis, it's kind of hard to keep everything straight or know where to go with the pharmacotherapy. I think when you're looking at a list of disease states that someone has, it tends to be pretty low priority as far as what you're looking at. Uh, but this can lead to blindness. It's kind of a big deal. It is. Blindness is no good. Uh, it's very it's very common. I have some background, actually. Do you? Yeah, it's a, it's it's been a, a known disease for a long time. Uh, and the definition has drastically changed since, of course, Hippocrates, the Greeks, um, kind of discovered it back in 400 B.C. The original word was glaucosis. Hmm. It's kind of expanded from there. It meant clouded or blue-green hue which was most likely describing a patient having corneal edema or rapid evolution of cataract precipitated by chronic elevated pressure, which we'll talk a lot about that. That's awesome. Yeah. That was supposed to Boom. happen before your, your history lesson. How am I supposed to pause? Yeah. Well, we could, you know. No, it was my fault. I wasn't there. I wasn't, wasn't ready. Well, originally we were going to have like, you know, a little, little theme song. Yeah. That didn't really take that. Yeah, day. no, I think we did like one jingle, one episode. Did we actually add <laughs> that? In? All about it. I it's don't probably remember. the only editing we've done in 60 episodes. Pretty much. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but overall, glaucoma uh, defined as a characteristic progressive degenerative um, disease of the optic nerve may also lead to specific visual field defects over time. Uh, the process can be slow. Um, or it can be, it can be, you know, insidious over time, but it can be slowed by adequate lowering of intraocular pressure. And uh, we'll talk a little bit, a little bit about patho, which is not, um, greatly known, uh, but the biggest thing seems to be this IOP. Uh, at least it's one thing that we can actually modify. Other risk factors don't seem to be particularly modifiable. Right. And so when we think of intraocular pressure, normal is considered 12 to 22 millimeters of mercury. Um, And so when we get this elevation in intraocular pressure, especially over time, it can start causing damage. And like Cole was saying, can lead to things like blindness. 
Um, so when we think of glaucoma, um, that's kind of an overarching term because there's several different types um, or categories of glaucoma. Um, the one of the most common types is going to be your open angle glaucoma, which is a more of a chronic condition. Um, to put it as simply as possible, the you know the channel that's responsible for draining some of that aqueous humor um, is partially blocked. And this causes this very gradual process um, of this increase in IOP, um, intraocular pressure. And, and as that goes up, um, the symptoms become worse and more likelihood for uh, more damaging long-term effects. Um, but it is the most common. And then um, we also have closed angle glaucoma, which that's more of an acute condition. That's where we get this very abrupt blockage of that channel. And uh, the, the intraocular pressure goes up very quickly. Um, so this is actually considered a medical emergency um, that can actually lead to blindness. Um, so when we talk about some of the treatment options today, we're going to focus more so on the open angle kind of maintenance therapy. Um, but we can touch on a couple options for um you know, a closed angle, acute emergency um, at the end too. Yeah, we tend to focus more on chronic stuff. Yeah. Rather than, we've, we've touched on, we've done some acute things, hospital things, but mostly chronic outpatient stuff. Right. Um, they also have a term called secondary glaucoma. Um, and this is, this kind of mimics just regular uh, open angle glaucoma, except that the blockage that's keeping that aqueous humor from being able to drain is um, directly due to some type of either inflammation um, from like an injury um, or possibly like an infection. There's some sort of a, a condition that caused um, that blockage to happen, that inflammation to kind of build over time. And so again, it's still kind of, kind of a gradual process, but it's, we kind of can pinpoint maybe what caused it. Right. Um, and then there is also congenital. So there's people who are born with genetic abnormalities. And so they just have this blockage of that, that channel just um, from a genetic predisposition. So glaucoma is more of a general term. And so if you're going to diagnose someone, you would choose one of those, obviously. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, like you said, it can occur without um, an elevated intraocular pressure. And that would be termed like normal tension or low tension glaucoma. Um, but there are other risk factors other than pressure, uh, family history, race, specifically African-American race, um, age older than 40 years, and myopia, which is nearsightedness. All of these are risk factors, and uh, taking a look at them, like I said before, the only one that's really modifiable and that we have good medications to treat is the pressure. I guess nearsightedness might be, but that's really just glasses. Yeah. Yeah. Readers. Is that what those are for? I hear people talk about readers all the time, and I don't even know what that means. I don't know. I think they're just on the end cap at, like, certain convenience stores. I've never been to the eye doctor, so... Really? Never? I could be basically blind. I wouldn't we have no know. idea. Yeah. But I, I, I just... Comp I basically compare... I'll say, Anna, can you see that sign over there? And she'll say no. And if I can see it, then I'm like, yeah, I'm you know good. You're good. Yeah. See, yeah, I have... There's no question <laughs> when, I, when I did I'm blind. Like, I take my contacts <laughs> off. No idea how to get Oh, you wear contacts? Oh, Yeah. No way. Yeah, if I take my contacts out, forget it. I don't even know the layout of my house anymore. I would never know. I'm done. Really? I literally can't see my hand. It's just well, all, it looks like a blob of... What is it? Is it It's not near or far? It's just blind? I always get this confused because it's far as when you can't... When you're far-sighted, it means you can see things close. Is I have right? absolutely no idea. It's I've never been to the eye doctor. <laughs> Basically, I can see things up close, but I can't see them far away, whatever the okay. heck the term is. And now I'm showing my ignorance, but... Um, I, I, yeah, I can see, like, I can read without my contacts and be right. fine, but if I try to see far away or if I were to drive, I, yeah, I'd crash immediately. So you have to stick those things in your eye every morning? No, I have the uh, night and day ones. 
that's well, a thing. You, yeah. What well, it's not it's frowned upon, but yeah. I was gonna say I thought if you <laughs> I thought if you slept with him that was bad. No, I mean yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it puts you more at risk for pseudomonas infection in the eye. But I mean like we've all been there. So you basically put those in like six years ago and haven't taken them out. Um, no. So what I do. So this is my strategy. Is this what you recommend to patients? No, absolutely <laughs> not. It's completely from a non-medical <laughs> standpoint. Um, but I have the ones that are made for one full month of continuous wear. And so I figure when they were doing the tests on those, right? They left They went on. really conservative with the, the time frame. Oh, okay. That way they're you know, not liable. So I'm like, okay, so I can extrapolate that a little bit further than one month. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, you, so if you pull it out in six months, let's say, <laughs> not only is it more economical, <laughs> but you can see great all the time. It's probably good for the environment, right? I think it is, actually. I mean, they, don't they make, um, don't they make, um, um, uh, whatever they're called? Yes. Yeah. From, <laughs> they do. From, like, the tears of horses or something like that? Yes. More than likely? Yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I think I it's that. overall good for... For the earth. It's good for my so. uh, well-being, being able to see. Yeah, that's Yeah, I true. like being able to see more Which is I, good for the general public when yeah, you're driving. for sure. So. For sure. Um, yeah, but yeah, I leave them in kind of all the time. I'll take them out every once in a while, but... can't remember what I was saying. Myopia. Yeah, nearsightedness. Yeah, anyways. That was a tangent. Yeah. Whew. Shoot the rabbit. Mm. Man. Uh, anyways, so two major theories as far as the patho goes. There's some other, other little things, but for the most part, uh, one is onset of vascular dysfunction causing ischemia to the optic nerve. Uh, another would be a mechanical dysfunction via cribriform plate compression of the axons. Uh, there's other proposed um, uh, mechanisms that involve uh, neuronal growth factors, excessive retinal glutamate, um, immune-mediated nerve damage, nitric oxide synthase activity. This is interesting because there might be some new medications in the pipeline that are going to um, act on those medica- uh, those mechanisms specifically, but for the most part... Right now, it's just um, acting on IOP. And that's not Institute of Psychiatry. There you go. Yeah. Every time I think that, or I'll start to say, and when I try to say Institute of Psychiatry, I'll say IL, because like Isle of Palms, oh, IOP, yeah. that's what I grew up with. Isle of Psychiatry. Yeah, I always say Isle of Psychiatry and look like a moron in front of whoever I'm talking well, to. Well, it is IOP, right? It is, yeah. They're wow. both IOP, <laughs> except, yeah, one's the Institute. <laughs> Um, all right, so some medications to kind of be on the lookout for if somebody does have uh, a history of glaucoma, um, even if they're controlled, some things that can potentially increase the intraocular pressure. Um, so any kind of anticholinergic, um, so we're talking cough and cold medications, um, antihistamines are, would be a very common culprit of this. Um, pseudoephedrine can also cause some issues. Um, and then chronic steroid use, whether that's topically or systemically, um, can potentially increase the intraocular pressure um topiramate topamax mm. is something that can so if, if you have a patient that is taking this especially since we use topiramate for so many different things now other than yeah. just seizure control um you know we you see that migraines and different types of um psych scenarios and things like that so if you had a picture a patient that had intra uh, a history of glaucoma or um any kind of intraocular pressure uh situation going on you would definitely want to use some caution with topiramate so in his, you said antihistamines and Sudafed. So people frequently ask me, they're like, so what, uh, what cold medications can I take with high blood pressure? And I'm like, well, you know, stay away from Sudafed. But I guess glaucoma plays a part in there too. Like what, daily Zyrtec, you'd want to be careful if you have uncontrolled okay. glaucoma? Mm-hmm. I mean, because if you think about it, like you use one of the classes, right, is cholinergic. So if you're using yeah. anticholinergic, you can get the opposite effect. Makes sense. 
But um, as far as treatment goes with glaucoma, you have kind of two basic, as far as the way it is right now anyway, you have kind of two basic things you're trying to accomplish. You either want to um, produce less of that aqueous humor you know, fluid or you want to increase the outflow. And so usually the drugs that we have now are kind of targeting one of those or even both of those potentially, um, obviously not including some of the other drugs that are potentially coming out. But what we have right now is kind of usually targeting one of those two things. It's kind of keeping it as simple as possible. So what do you want to do? Do you want to get right into these uh, drug classes? Yeah, quickly before the drugs. Yeah, um, go for it. So as, as far as when to treat it, mm-hmm. that can be a little bit... Um, up to you, I guess. It's not super well defined. I guess there's guidelines to follow. Some some physicians might say, okay, uh, if the pressure is above 21 millimeters of mercury, then we're going to go ahead and treat to get it down even without other symptoms. Um, that's not particularly recommended. Others wait until uh, there's evidence of optic nerve damage. Um, you could argue that that may mean that there, there might be a little bit too far along and you've waited a little too long for treatment. Um, because a nerve layer loss of up to 40% may occur before you actually have visual field defects. Um, so, you know, that it's not really recommended to treat based on visual field testing alone. So most would say um, you're looking at risk factors along with the elevated pressure. Um, and we talked about some of those risk factors along with the medications that Mike said. So you're kind of looking at the whole picture and um, you just want to feel it out and see if it's worth benefit risk ratio because there are side effects that can... Um, come from these medications, even though it's, is considered a topical medication. Um, you do have some systemic absorption. Uh, so yeah, just kind of play risk benefit. And, um, as far as what to expect from treatment, um, a few points is, is kind of what you're, what you're looking at. Um, they, they recommend to start with one eye in a lot of cases. And then you can kind of, if they have, you can have glaucoma more, or you can have more of an elevated pressure in uh, one eye than the other. But they, if they're similar, they would recommend starting with one eye, seeing if they have a response and comparing that to the baseline pressure of the other eye. And if they do have a good response, then you can go to both eyes. Uh, but if their pressure is around 28 to 30, they do recommend going ahead and, and treating. Um, and, you know, with most medications, there's a 2 to 3 millimeters of mercury uh, decrease, sometimes 4, sometimes more. But um, it'll be different for different people. So a lot of times when you are first initiating therapy, um, prostaglandin analogs are typically the the go-to starting um, agent, unless there's some sort of a contraindication or something. Um, there's some other options as well, but prostaglandins do seem to have the most, um, as far as a percentage-wise, decrease in intraocular pressure from whatever the baseline was. Um, so there, there's been some meta-analyses and things that have compared uh, specifically decreases in intraocular pressure amongst classes, and uh, prostaglandins do seem to have the most. So, you know, just some some of the options you have, um, there's things like latanoprost that most of us have all seen, um, travaprost, uh, and some other options as well. Um, I can always post these. My I have some slides on this that I made, so I can always post those online if anybody's yeah, interested. Good. Um, but basically, the mechanism of action, you're, you're increasing the outflow of the, that aqueous uh, humor, and you're doing that um, instead of the channel that normally is, is being blocked, you're actually um, using the um, uveoscleral pathway to increase that outflow. And so um, it does seem to be a very common 
initial treatment for a lot of patients. Um, according to the studies, the meta-analyses, things like that, you're looking um, at about 30% decrease in intraocular pressure from baseline. It's kind of the average from some of the bigger studies. Um, some other studies obviously are going to show some different things. But um, it is considered to be, uh, by most, to be the, the most effective agent for lowering that intraocular pressure. And so they increase that outflow. Uh, one mechanism of action may be through induction of metalloproteinases in the ciliary body. Uh, they break down the extracellular matrix and reduce resistance to outflow through those uh, uvoscleral pathways. But they can have some mild adverse effects. I think they're generally well tolerated. Um, conjunctival hyperemia, iris pigmentation, uh, uvitis, so little things is, is that kind of you associate with um, topical irritation of the eye, I suppose. Yeah. So the, the darkening of the iris is actually something you would, you would definitely want to inform the patient about, especially in patients that have very light um, colored eyes, um, because you really can get this darkening of that, of that color, making it more of a brownish color um, of the iris. And there's even been some reports of it affecting the color um, or darkening of eyelids and eyelashes as well. Um, and so uh, the other thing is, is you know, which to some people are going to find this as a benefit because they actually make a version of one of these agents for this purpose, but you will actually notice a, an increase in the length mm -hmm. and number of eyelashes. I actually see that a lot. Yeah. So I, I guess it depends on which, if you're really looking for thick eyelashes, then that would be a good thing. But um, I could see why some people would not be super thrilled about that. Yeah, and that's bimatoprost specifically. But yeah. latanoprost is frequently the most um, common option. And I would say generally for open angle glaucoma, probably the most common option. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some other things that can happen too, just like with any other multi-dose solution. So there are preservatives in these because they're going in the eye, um, but any, you know, type of um, bacterial keratitis can happen. So ulceration of the, of the cornea can, is a potential if you were to get infected. Um, and so you know, it is something that you'd want to educate your patients on looking for the signs and symptoms of any kind of eye infection, um, just so they're kind of aware of what to, what to look for. Um, and speaking of preservatives, so there is a preservative called um, benzylconium chloride or BAK back. I'm not really sure how they actually reference that. I think BAK is how I typically say it. I like back. Back. Okay, I'm fine. We'll switch you to back. Cole says back. Um, but that's going to be the preservative that's in most of the prostaglandin analogs. Um, and one of the problems with this is, and we saw this with like some of the artificial tears and things like that as well, is it can, the more you use it, it can actually lead to um, some chronic inflammation. Um, and it can lead kind of worse in dry eyes. So if somebody has to be on an artificial tear for a long time, we typically recommend them to use a uh, preservative-free, um, like, single-dose vial. Um, but the same kind of thing can happen with this, and these people are going to be on this probably for a lot longer, yeah. um, especially if they have contact lenses. So they need to make sure they're taking their contacts out when with any of these medications, but specifically anything that has that back preservative, taking their contacts out, putting the drops in, and then waiting about 15 minutes before they actually put them back in because mm. it can be absorbed in the contacts and it'll break them apart and so basically if you get glaucoma then you're in trouble me yeah i'm done yeah it's over i don't take them out blind just might as well just no, go yeah, straight I for just it give it up <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and so if you have a patient that has a, a past reaction with this back preservative or has deals with dry eye on top of um, the glaucoma, then Travitan Z um, has a different preservative instead of back. And then the Zyoptan is one of the newer agents, and that's a single-use vial. And so why so, would you use these again if somebody had if an somebody allergy? If somebody had a, uh, some kind of a past reaction where gotcha, they've yeah. had an issue with this preservative. Because gotcha. there's an either alternative or the other one's single use, so there is no preservative. Something to kind of watch out for. There is kind of a new kit on the block as far as um, prostaglandin analogs go. It's called Visolta. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the first prostaglandin analog with nitric oxide as one of its metabolites um, and is indicated for reduction of IOP in patients with open-angle glaucoma or ocular hypertension. Um, yeah, which it's interesting because some of what uh, the new drugs that they're looking at have to do with decreasing nitric oxide around um, the eye. So it's kind of strange, but yeah. I guess it works. Latinoprostine bunod. Yes, that's what it is. Yeah. So that's prostaglandins, right? Um, yeah, the, uh, one thing to mention since we did bring it up, but the Latisse is the, the version that yeah. you use specifically for increasing growth of eyelashes. If you do have someone, you know, that is getting those, it is important to kind of, uh, talk to them about application. So in that case, you are putting the um, medication, applying it to the actual like edge of the eyelid because mm-hmm. you're trying to get the eyelashes to grow specifically. And so this kind of seems like common sense, but, um, there have been case reports where, a patient was getting uh, was on a prostaglandin, and then was given Latisse on top of it, not considering that the exact same class of medication, and uh, caused some problems. So, kind of be aware of that because there are this is something that's used fairly commonly for cosmetic purposes. Yeah, might as well minimize that ad, uh, adverse effects, um, risk of adverse effects. Just counsel and apply to the eyelid. Yep. Yeah, so uh, you start them on a prostaglandin inhibitor. So what do you do? You get them back in maybe two to four weeks, see how it's going, see if they're having a response. Um, I think it's prostaglandins can actually have a peak effect around six to eight weeks of treatment, so that's something to look out for. Uh, but otherwise, two to four weeks, they, they should have um, a reasonable effect if they're going to have one. For some people, they just don't really work well, but um, for the majority, they do. So you would want to reassess and consider um, maybe adding on something else at that point, maybe, you know, but wait a little longer if you were doing a monocular trial and you're going to binocular. Uh, but next in line, if you're going to switch to it or add it on, would probably be the beta blockers. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty common class. Uh, Timolol is one that you see a lot. Uh, their mechanism of action, it varies between them, but Timolol in particular is a non-selective agent, uh, can reduce IOP uh, with or without glaucoma, and these work a little bit differently. So Mike talked about increasing outflow. These work uh, by reducing production of aqueous humor and decreasing um, decreasing the intraocular pressure. Uh, so I, I never really thought that, you know, I never really considered interactions and adverse effects from these, but there is some systemic absorption with these beta blockers. Yeah. And so especially um, beta blockers, just, actually quite a bit. Right. Specific with the beta blockers. And so you would want to watch out for adverse effects that you would get with any oral systemic beta blocker. Um, for instance, uh, bronchospasm, bradycardia, heart block, hypotension, um, uh, sexual dysfunction may be initiated or exacerbated. Blurred vision, eye ache, corneal anesthesia, those, those smaller ones, but uh, specifically drug interactions. Um, you can decrease the systemic absorption um, by holding that uh, corner of your eye, which the 
term for it escapes me now, but uh, when applying, you can, and I'll have the term in a few minutes. Um, but, but yeah, it, it, you do want to watch out for that. And it's, I, I definitely hear a lot of people discount the systemic absorption of the eye drops, but uh, it's definitely there. For sure. Um, so like we said, 30% um, decrease from baseline intraocular pressure with the prostaglands, you're looking at about 22%. Um, with the beta blockers and like Cole said these a lot of times are the kind of the add-on agent but they also can be used first line as well um, whether it's a, if it's a cost thing or whatever it may be or a contraindication to a prostaglandin you can use beta blocker first line um, and it is actually the preferred agent in patients that have increased intraocular pressure in only one eye so um, they do typically prefer and I think um, partly with some of that changes in iris color and things like that um it can also play a role if you don't have that same risk with the beta blocker so if you can get that pressure down with this it may be a good option if you only have to treat one eye so patients can perform punctal occlusion when applying that's what it's called punctal occlusion yeah i was looking right at it i just looked over it yeah but that's that little the little crease right there where you get the little eye boogers in the morning Mm -hmm. just hold on to that familiar when when you're applying and bada bang bada boom bam that's all you gotta do decreases systemic absorption So beta blocker contraindications. Um, Again, this is topical beta blockers. So um, sinus bradycardia. So if the patient has a history of bradycardia um, or if they have second or in third degree heart block, um, unless they're obviously in a pacemaker, then you would not want to use one of these agents uh, in that patient because um, of the systemic absorption. So you got to make sure um, that they don't have any kind of cardiac history like that. Um, other adverse effects, burning, stinging, um, it can actually cause bradycardia in patients that don't um, have a history of it. And uh, bronchospasm is also something to kind of consider, especially with all of these agents being non-selective except for um, betaxolol or um, betopic S. That one is uh, is specific, selective, but the rest of them are non-selective. And so you do want to use some caution if you're using them in, um, with patients that have a history of COPD, asthma, emphysema. So what about pregnancy? I know there's a concern with beta blockers in general with pregnancy. I saw, I, I didn't well, look up what like, you know, category, even though those don't well, exist Well, law is preferred now in pregnancy. Right. For hypertension. So I would think. So you think it's fine? Yeah. Okay. I'd have to, don't quote me on that, but. There was a couple of case reports, but, um, and it does. Because I think, because it, instead of, I think uh, labetalol is now taking over methyl dopa in pregnancy, hyper, um, hypertension during pregnancy. Okay. As what my memory serves me hopefully i'm not wrong on no, that. no libido is definitely using pregnancy no yeah. so that's um, one of my weak areas what pregnancy ob yeah G- i usually have to so. look yeah i'm not super great with that the moms will show me something and say is this okay in yeah. breastfeeding or whatever and i have some i'm some, like hmm. some some female mom friend pharmacist that i usually resort to yeah they know <laughs> for sure um one thing that I forgot to mention with prostaglandins too is the dosing. Um, it's actually really convenient because it's typically going to be dosed one time, uh, one drop in each eye, and it's usually at bedtime. And so, you know, the, it's very convenient for patients' good adherence. Um, the beta blockers typically are going to be a two-a-day dosing um, unless you have like the timolol that's the gel forming solution. Um, so the timolol GFS, that one's actually once a day. And so uh, that's kind of the exception to the rule, but the rest of the beta blockers are typically going to be twice a day. So may have a little bit more problems with with uh, adherence, having to take it twice, but something to consider. I don't think we said all the names of uh, the beta blockers, but beta-GAN is another one, um, Betopic S, Cardolol, and Metipranolol. Mm-hmm. Not familiar with that one, but yeah, 
that's uh, for the most part, Timolol is going to be the most common. Yeah, for sure. Uh, alpha two agonists. Yeah, cool. Let's do it. Um, so the one you're probably the most uh, familiar with is the alpha gan P um, bromonidine. Um, you may not be aware that uh, bromonidine actually has a branded uh, version that's OTC now. So Lumafly. Um, that one is OTC and it's approved. It's not for glaucoma. It's not what its indication is over the counter. It's actually, um, approved for ocular redness. Um, mm. yeah. So that's what it's actually approved for OTC, but it is available. Um, and there's some other, you know, alpha two agonists as well. Um, but these are going to kind of work both on outflow and production of aqueous humors They're kind of hitting it from two different angles. And so a lot of times this is one of the add-ons that people kind of, uh, go to, um, However, one of the kind of um, things to watch out for and make sure patients are aware of, especially if they're not, you know, pretty medication naive, um, is it can cause some CNS depression. Mm. So if a patient has, you know, a job that would require them to do any kind of like, you know, physical machinery or like any kind of driving, things like that, they would probably want to start this agent, even though it's an eye drop, um, because there's some systemic absorption and CNS depression associated with it, starting it on a weekend or something where they can be home to see how that affects them. A lot of people have no problem with it, but it is definitely something to at least make patients aware of because most people are not going to be thinking an eye drop is going to cause any problems like that. Right. Now I'm sure they think it's pretty mild for the most part. So, so do most, I think most healthcare professionals generally yeah. do too. Uh, but you can look for up to 27% uh, reduction in IOP potentially. Uh, twice a day dosing is used initially, especially if it's in combination with other products. Uh, but you can use three times a day dosing, especially if this is the single agent. Um, though non-preferred, it may be, you know, it may be used by itself depending on issues with other ones. Um, as far as side effects go, it is, I think, lower than others. Moderate risk of allergic response. Um, and uh, you were going to talk about the Alphagen P versus the regular Alphagen, right? Yeah, so th this is something that you, you may run into. Um, Alphagen P, because um, the, the other older versions of these Alpha 2 agonists had that same BAK back uh, preservative in them. Alphagen P kind of has their own um, trademarked preservative that they have. Um, it's called uh, Perite, and it is something that they, they made a combination that was in even in very, very low concentrations, um, still perform the task of, of working well as a preservative and um, decreasing any kind of um, microbial growth. And so it was replaced um, it went in Alpha P specifically. They put that preservative in there and uh, replaced it. They weren't getting the same kind of adverse effects that you would see with the back, like the inflammation and all that. Um, now, the generic version, the bromonidine, has a preservative that's different than back as well, but it's not that perite because that's actually a, like their branded um, com compound or concoction, if you will. Um, but the one that's in the generic is called polyquad. Um, and so it's actually like a detergent type preservative that is um, made specifically, derived specifically from BAK. And so it, it is much less harmful. However, uh, over time, the longer you use it, it does still have um, the potential to reduce the density and they, it's of conjunctival globular cells specifically, which can then decrease that aqueous tear film production and um, lead to some problems. So I've run into this before where the patient really prefers brand name Alphagan P because the generic um, causes them to have some red eye and some problems. And that is a real thing because that's the reason kind of behind it. So kind of 
be on the lookout for that, kind of be aware that that is the case with that particular agent. Um, and, you know, just kind of watch out for, for that issue. Cause I, I was unfamiliar with it the very first time I ran into it. Yeah. And it, for retail pharmacists out there, if you get a prescription that just says generic, um, it does come in different like concentrations. I think mm-hmm. 0.1%, 0.15%, 0.2% yep. is bromonidine generally. Um, and the brand names do kind of vary between those. I think Alphagen P might be like 0.1 and 0.15 or something like that. Um, but anyways, I called an ophthalmologist to ask him one day if we could kind of switch it around because patient's insurance went covering it and one was cheaper than the other. And he was like, yeah, yeah, we can if, if they need to, but I would prefer one of the Alphagen P uh, generics if possible. And it was probably because yeah. it's better tolerated overall than the Alphagen products. There, there's actually a really good Medscape article that was written about all the different preservatives they use in eye drops. And they, they mentioned this little um, switcheroo that the generic does. So it's an issue because, like I said, the first time I ran into this, I was like, I, I thought the patient was kind of just being dramatic. Um, like but, patients do. Yeah, and then, but like, and then it just showed me. Oh, I want that, the red ones, not the blue ones. Yeah, and it just showed me that, no, no, I'm just ignorant. You don't know everything. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, well, there you go. Time to go read some more. That's how we learned, Mike, because I didn't know either. So. True. Uh, but yeah, that's the most common alpha-2. There's also lodipine, or I mean, sorry, lopidine. Uh, man, I sounded like somebody trying to say, am, what a patient trying to say, I'm lodipine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but lopidine is uh, apoclonidine, and it reduces IOP, of course, as well, um, even if it's not accompanied by glaucoma. And I think those are really just the two alpha twos. They're, yeah, yeah, used to. Um, another class you'll see is the carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. Um, and again, we're still talking topical eye drop agents. Um, the dorzolamide is one. Um, brinzolamide is another one. It's the ASOPT is the brand name for that. Um, and then this one actually comes as common. This class is, is known for being in combination with other products. So uh, dorzolamide is in combination with Timolol that makes COSOP. And then one of the newer agents is that um, brinzolamide along with bromonidine, and that's um, Simbraza. So that one's still brand name only, I believe. Um, but you will still see these added on to other therapies. And there are other combinations like uh, Timbalol and Bermonidine. We highlighted those, but that's Combigan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, there's one other carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, Diamox, which is acetazolamide, uh, which also comes as an oral form. Right. Uh, I, I think it might only comes in oral form. Actually. Oral IV. Yeah, oral IV. Gotcha. Um one thing to, to consider with these, uh, any, any of these agents, so any any carbonic anhydrase inhibitor would be um, the sulfonamide allergy. So all of these are going to have a sulfonamide group um, at their core of the molecule. And so patients that have a true sulfonamide allergy um, would be potentially at risk for having an allergic reaction to this and some cross sensitivity there. Um, so they, you're still going to get some systemic absorption just like you would with the other eye drops. And so it is something that you need to make sure you're checking a patient's chart. My wife actually sees this um, acetazolamide brand name Diamox more often than I do because um, I, I'm pretty sure this is right, but it's, it's a preferred treatment in IIH, which is idiopathic intracranial hypertension which a lot of her um, neurologic patients suffer from. And so she sometimes has to prescribe this. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, they use all kinds of like kind of oddball, thing, like uh, altitude sickness. Yeah, altitude sickness. Yeah, so yeah. there's some other kind of different options for acetazolamide. It's a, uh, it's a true cure-all, if you will. <laughs> it's what it is. It's cure-all for random things. Random random things that we don't know what else to do it for. <laughs> um, 
so some of the adverse effects, uh, it's pretty, pretty basic, you know, topical irritation, burning, blurred vision, um, potentially some dry eyes. Um, one thing that's interesting is dorzolamide actually has in the package insert that it's contraindicated in patients with a creatinine clearance of less than 30. Hmm. So I guess they are worried enough about systemic absorption. Um, yeah, I guess it can increase renal excretion of sodium, potassium carbonate, mm-hmm. um, and water to decrease production of aqueous humor. And so, yeah, makes it sense. Works on that RAS system. So I guess they got some systemic absorption as well. Man, you got to watch out for these eye drops. These eye drops will get you. They're not benign. They are sure not. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Um, uh, and then like you said, the acetazolamide, um, oral agent and we can talk about this towards the end but um there's there is cases where they will use this um for emergency situations like the acute closed angle glaucoma um or there's there's cases where if a patient has been on a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor eye drop it's not working you can try them on the oral agent to see if that'll give you them some more relief and some more decreases in their intraocular pressure so our patients that are taking this daily orally for glaucoma um, and the reason we kind of pitch these as fourth line is because they are less effective than the others as far as decreasing IOP. Their duration of action is shorter. Um, they do have, we mentioned some side effects. They have some other rare ones, um, acidosis, I guess, related to the renal stuff, paresthesias, anorexia, nausea, depression, um, dysgeisia, which is not an, an issue where you walk around in a disguise. That's actually Wait. altered taste. Wait, what? Yeah. Um, so yeah, a lot, some random things that are rare, but I guess can't happen. And then, uh, one of the other older groups of, of, uh, classes would be the cholinergics, um, or the, uh, myonics. Um, the one that I probably, if you're going to see one of these, you'd be most likely to see would be pilocarpine. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, this is, again, these, these are working on, um, that increase of that aqueous outflow and, uh, these would truly be considered like at least fourth line option as at far least, as added yeah. on. Um, and so uh, these are definitely not something that you would be using until you've exhausted some other resources first. So kind of they're, they're out there, they're available, but um, there's also a lot of adverse effects. So you can get um, things like pupil constriction, um, which can eventually lead to uh, loss of night vision or at least poor night vision, um, has some systemic effects like hypotension, um, it can even cause GI discomfort, like abdominal cramps, things like that, bronchospasms of potential. Um, so there's a lot of different adverse effects with this, and it's just one of those things that uh, not not anywhere near first line anymore. And it doesn't come as an eye drop, does it? It's just oral? Carpine, I believe It is. does? Okay, mm-hmm. it's, it's eye drop and oral. Then. Yeah. Because I knew it was oral because I've seen it used for other things. I mean, but, I'm uh, checking myself live. Yeah, I, I see. I want to make sure. I see. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. Comes, yeah, okay, definitely. Cool. Isoptocarpine. I got to quit just saying. Well, turns out you know everything, Mike, so that you don't even have to worry about being wrong. Uh, man. I mean, preceptors of the year know everything. That's true. <laughs> Especially three-time winners. <laughs> we don't talk about that. <laughs> um, yeah, there's other, other random things. There's some things in the pipeline, like I'm talked about acting on those um, other mechanisms. One I thought was interesting was Naminda. It's not FDA approved for glaucoma, and I don't think the data actually panned out very well. Um, but it is has an approved off-label use for glaucoma. Don't know that I'd ever really use it, but maybe if you're killing two birds, mm-hmm. which whether well, it works that well for 
So there, there's actually um, looking at like an algorithm that you can find if you're looking in like DePiro's um, pharmacotherapy textbook. They actually have listed on there. Um, so it wouldn't be Nemenda, but they have they mention a cholinesterase inhibitor, um, like fourth line that could potentially uh, replace one of the cholinergic agents. Hmm. So there's some, they're looking kind of on that pathway at least. But um, the w- other thing, too, that w- I forgot to mention with cholinergics before we go past that one is uh, you cannot use those in a patient that has a history of retinal detachment or any kind of, like, severe corneal abrasion. Um, you don't want to use one of the cholinergics. Gotcha. Um, you men- did you mention the row kinase inhibitor? I was just the about new- to. Oh, go for it. Yeah, so I actually had a patient who um, they said they were going to pay for it, and so we ordered three bottles of Repreza, mm. um, and they didn't, so we were stuck with three bottles of Repreza. Fortunately, we were able to return it. Um, but that is a row kinase. Uh, a Repreza is, yeah, row kinase inhibitor, natarsidil. It's an ophthalmic drop. Um, these will increase the aqueous humor outflow. Um, it's also kind of a new kid on the block. Came around in December of 2017, um, and it's a first-in-class uh, yeah. kinase and norepinephrine transporter. And they were nice enough to include that same stinking preservative. Oh, it's in the there? AKs it's back in there. So <laughs> if you're going to use the new kid on the block, take your contacts out. <laughs> it was approved with the Rocket 1 and Rocket 2 trials. Bam. Not to be confused with Rocket AF. Non-inferior to Timolol in the per-protocol population with a max baseline IOP less than 25 in both nice. studies. Um, can get some uh, adverse effects from that burning eye pain, to, you know, pretty typical. Um, and then uh, conjunctival hemorrhage, mm. not, so, not so fun. Neither of those sound particularly pleasant. No, not really. Um, you can also, uh, there's been cases of conjunctival hyperemia, which is the, you know, excessive blood vessels um, forming. And mm. so there can be some, I guess that's where the conjunctival hemorrhage risk comes from. If somebody's um, had has a burst blood vessel, you may not know, but there's nothing like over the counter that you can recommend for a burst blood vessel, right? Not that I'm aware. Which probably say like, might want to go be seen if your eye's all bloody. Well, if it's your eye, I mean, I mean I'd probably if it probably so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it may not be anything an ophthalmologist can do with it, but I wouldn't personally take any risks with my eyes. Yeah. Except for just wearing contacts. Listen, but day and night. I mean, you give me some 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 Ophloxes and I'll be fine. <laughs> seen a fluoroquinolone, take that, take that pseudomonas right out. Forget that stuff. It's wimpy. Yeah, get some moxifloxacin, good to go. It's a wimpy bug. No big deal. <laughs> it is, it's in, okay, if it's in my lungs, I'm more concerned. <laughs> if it's in my blood, I'm concerned. Eyes, come on, get out of here. No problem. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> um, so there's actually a uh, article that was published on March 31st, so a couple days ago. Um, it was a phase two trial um, looking at this new uh, potential drug um, called, uh, I hope I don't butcher this name, um, amidenopag isoprolol in patients with primary open angle glaucoma or ocular hypertension. Um, So it was uh, basically a report of three different randomized uh, trials that were trying to find proper dosing and um, looking at, you know, some adverse effects, things like that. Um, But the findings did seem to be promising. I think the trials are going to move on to phase three and um, it could be uh, another potential agent. Um, but it, yeah, just came out two two uh, days ago in the Journal of Glaucoma. And what was that mechanism again? Um, it's a EP2 agonist. EP2. Yeah, selective EP2 agonist. Um, I do just want to say that one of the other side effects of the carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, I had to look this one up, is lassitude. 
uh, I think that's going to be my word of the day, mm-hmm. but basically a state of physical or mental weariness, lack of energy. So uh, most mornings I am affected by lassitude. Really? And I have to overcome that. Hmm. I just wake up ready to go. My, motiv- <laughs> my motivation car- carries me through. That's why, that's why uh, we're allowed to record in the mornings? No. <laughs> no All recording right. in the All mornings. All right, you caught me. That was a bluff. <laughs> that was a bluff. Um, okay, so this is, I, I thought this was kind of interesting. These are actually two studies that I saw in um, my, my wife's high yield med reviews book. So and I'm going to shout them out here just because I'm a huge fan. But um, if you are studying for the BCPS or any of those types of um, board exams, I would definitely encourage you to check out high yield med exams. Um, I'm not associated with him. Complete disclosure, I don't like even really know him personally or anything, the guy that writes it, but um, he's an MD, PharmD. Um, and an RN actually, he's got all three. So he's yeah, pretty much covers everything. He just run a hospital by himself. And, uh, he, he's, is as painful as it is for me to admit, cause I'm cold knows how competitive I am. Mm. His stuff is, is pretty top notch. Well, you recognize quality when you see I quality. I do. I can't help it. I'm just like, man, this guy's good. And sometimes you recognize non-quality when there's non-quality. <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> Usually in private. I but. try to try to be nice about those, <laughs> but I'll have a good laugh every once in a while. Um, but uh, he had mentioned when he was in his glaucoma section, um, he had mentioned a couple studies that I thought were pretty interesting. One was the uh, ocular hypertension treatment study um, that included around 1,600 patients. And um, what they were doing is they were kind of assessing a patient's need for multiple agents in order to control the intraocular pressure. And so what that study showed was that by year five, um, around 40% of patients needed at least two drugs, some of them more, um, actually to reach their their goal intraocular pressure, which was only 24 uh, millimeters of mercury or less. And um, then there was another study called the Collaborative um, Initial Glaucoma Treatment Study. And that one only had 600 patients, but in that particular study, by year two, 70% of patients needed at least two drugs in order to reach their target intraocular pressures. So I, I think the moral of that story, I think the point he was trying to make was that the odds of kind of treating the, the situation with one agent may not be realistic. Yeah. And so it would be pretty common to need a, a second and even third line agent. And it's not something that should be, um, you know, shied away from that you kind of go into it knowing that you probably are need multiple agents. And, you know, remember that if somebody is just over the threshold of high IOP, um, you know, treat based on risk factors as well. Um, uh, we didn't mention it, but adding doubling up on a drug class, there hasn't really been sh- shown any additive effects of like two prostaglandin inhibitors or two beta blockers or whatever, probably just increased side effects. So not something we want to do. Uh, and lastly, I want to say that when I Googled this word lassitude, um, both, both, so when it was like, you know, gave the definition, then it used it in a sentence, both of them, uh, referred to women. So I think Google might be slightly sexist. Mm. Um, so the, the sentences are, she was overcome by lassitude and retired to bed. Oh, geez. And the other one was prolonged periods of lassitude, which she ascribed to the heat. No, Google. No, no Google. males involved. Google check yourself. I know. This is 2019. What are you guys doing over there? They've been in trouble for things like this in the past. (laughs) We're calling them out. Calling them out. We we get shut down on all all of our podcast platforms immediately. I was going to say, they're probably more concerned about this whole China military thing, but, you know, maybe they also don't use proper pronouns in their their, uh, definitions. Yeah, I'm not not okay with that. Come on, Googs. Bunch of nerds. (laughs) 
Um, so let's mention real quick, you know, we've talked a lot about the chronic condition of um, open angle glaucoma, but in an acute setting where you have more of an emergency type situation, ideally you want the patient to be able to be seen by an ophthalmologist as quick as possible. And a lot of times they say within an hour if possible um, to to cut down on any sort of long-term effects like blindness and um, making sure that the patient can can bring that intraocular pressure down as, as efficiently as possible. Um, now, if, if you know for a fact you're not going to be able to get to an ophthalmologist that quickly, um, then there are kind of some basic examples of things that like primary care setting or urgent care setting can kind of do until they can see uh, the specialist. And this one, I, I believe, came off up to date, um, but they just gave like a possible regimen basically where they said to use timolol, um, aproclonidine, and then pilocarpine. Um, you do one drop in each eye or whatever eye is affected, you one minute apart, and you give them those three agents to kind of try to bring that intraocular pressure down quickly. Um, and then they also said you could potentially use like IV acetazolamide. And even mannitol is potentially used. Um, and then I've seen this myself, actually, where um, primary care providers will give like two of the 250 milligram tablets of acetazolamide and have them take that at the clinic to start the process and then send them, you know, to down to, you know, like in our case, it would be MedU because so we have Storm Eye Center there and um, good ophthalmologists um, right there. But if you live out in a rural area, you might be quite Driving. far away. Yeah. But um, and then if that you know the more those types of situations were to happen, then those patients can potentially need uh, either a laser or some sort of a surgical procedure to fix the condition. Even with chronic um, open angle, mm -hmm. might might be uh, something that has to be done. Yep. Um, I'll mention this too, since we're we, we're talking about new studies. This one came out last night. Um, mm. Hannah, yes, you know, just My. just a sample. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, this one came out last night in the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Um, they uh, they were looking at um, ways to prevent intraocular pressure increases directly after cataract surgery. So, in patients that have glaucoma, they're they get the spike in IOP right after a cataract surgery. So we're trying to see which agent head to head would be better at controlling that. So they can, they compared, um, Timolol, they used Travaprost and then Brinzolamide. And at the end of the study, the one that was the most effective at minimizing that short term increase. Um, and that was basically between four to eight hours after the procedure was wait for it. Brinzolamide. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so they, uh, they basically said that, uh, that was kind of like the author's takeaway was that this gives us some insight that may be showing that brinzolamide may be a preferable agent for this particular situation. Mm. Turns Which out is, right, right when you get to the end, it says April fools. Yeah. I hope not. Cause I didn't get that far. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's published, uh, April 1st, um, American journal of ophthalmology. In case you want to check it out. Did we say, I, know, I think you mentioned with the back stuff, uh, separating by 15 minutes. Generally with eye drops, if it's two separate ones, do we want to separate those by a few minutes? Yeah, typically make Probably sure they idea. get absorbed, yeah. Yeah. Um, I also forgot to mention my epidemiology factoids. Mm. So um, glaucoma, generally, is the leading cause of irreversible blindness, second only to macular degeneration, as my patients would say. Um, only about a half, so 50% of people who have glaucoma are aware that they have the disease. More than 2.25 million Americans over the age of 40 um, have primary open angle glaucoma. 1.6 million have significant visual impairment. 
and about 84,000 to 116,000 have bilateral blindness in the U.S. alone. There you go. Epidemiology. Laying it on you. Stats. Yep. All about the stats. <laughs> I did it. Sound effect. Sound effect, boom. That's two today. That's wow. Enough. That's plenty. <laughs> I need someone to work this thing for me so I can what, stop forgetting to do it. What's Pete doing today? Here's the, about, here's the thing about Pete. <laughs> I don't trust him for a second. He's always too busy to help us. I know. He's got one job to do, and that's produce the entire podcast. <laughs> what is wrong with him? No. I'm sure, sure he can handle it. Yeah, he's busy. Cool. But, uh, yeah, that's about all we got for Glaucoma, guys. We may come back and, you know, hit hit the other types harder maybe yeah. in another episode. We could do that. We focus on open angle, touch on the others. But Get an ophthalmologist can... on. It'd be even much better. Yeah. Got to find one. If you know an ophthalmologist, send them our way. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I know any. We oh, got, I, I know one back home actually. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah, we um got some cool guests potentially coming up. Potentially got uh, Doctor Yuri Peterson is going to be potentially coming on to talk some biochem, um, some drug discovery. Um, we got. I'm, I'm trying to get uh, the founder of High Yield Med Reviews, um, Doctor Bustai, to come on. Um, trying to get in touch. He's a super busy guy. He speaks all over the country. So um, I'm sure our tiny podcast is not super <laughs> super uh, <laughs> vital to his success. But um, it'd be pretty cool to have him on here because his his program is pretty awesome. And then uh, also, um, hopefully, first week in May, we are going to have Doctor um, Lindsay. Um, Fitz Harris on who has a book on she's a uh, Oxford PhD um, that has uh, basically has written a very very good book on um, the some the history of surgeries and things like that and uh, she's she's actually quite famous um, just a bit she can't come on uh, the podcast until May because she's doing a book tour in Sweden so you know as we all are yeah and so she's, that'd be awesome the hope, fact that she even responded it. to my email was like mind-blowing so I couldn't believe it and so she was like one of the nicest people I've ever talked to so we're really looking forward to having her on so got some big things coming up also uh, give a shout out to um, MedEd 101 they got a pretty cool new program I was talking to them yesterday over on Instagram they have basically a and they have a they have free examples of this you can check it out but they have uh basically these the actual patient case videos of real patients real having real situations they've filmed and it gives you a kind of walk by walk way of treating the patient case and these are real patients these are actually what they saw in the emergency room they some of them start in the ambulance it's a pretty Hmm. awesome idea yeah, that's great. Wish I thought of it. <laughs> no, but it's it's pretty cool. So well, I guess you'd have to work in an ER. Yeah, yeah, I'm not not qualified, but um, no, it's a pretty cool idea. So again, um, those are just buddies of ours. So I'm not trying to yeah, unplug useless stuff. I'm just fans. So go for it. Check them out and uh, see what you think. You got anything else, Cole? That's all I got. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening and always, you know, appreciate the support. And if you guys do like the podcast, please subscribe, um, leave us a comment and or a rating even um, helps us out tremendously. Um, we, we very, very much appreciate any and all um, listeners that we have. You know, we're, we always joke about that. We're stunned that even like six people listen to this thing. So thank you guys so much for everyone that listens. And uh, we will come up uh, with some new topics and come back at you pretty quick. Y'all have a great night. See ya.